Hi everyone, it's Sarah and welcome to episode two of the Project Stay Alive podcast. Last week I introduced you to who we are and what my goals are with this podcast and I referenced that in order to ask others to be vulnerable and share with me that I had to do that as well. So for the second episode, it only feels fair to tell you about my life and what my mental health journey has looked like and how I define recovery. Before I do that, though, it's important for me to give a trigger warning. I talk about some sensitive content today. My life has not been perfect, and you know I don't even know what a perfect life looks like, but um, please know that while I do talk about sensitive topics like self-harm and suicidality and some very specific mental health disorders, I do not talk about methodology, I do not talk about ways to harm, and I do not go in depth into any of those things because that would not be responsible of me. So with that being said, I do hope you choose to listen and please know that um, the next few episodes are going to be other people sharing their stories with me. I don't want to be here and talking about myself all the time, but it felt important. So I'm here and I'm doing it and I'm doing it scared. I hope that you all choose to subscribe and leave any comments or reviews. I would love that information. Thank you so much and settle in. Hi everyone, it's Sarah. I am here today to talk to you a little bit about my own personal journey with mental health and mental health disorders and defining recovery and what that process has looked like for me. As a social worker, I preach a lot about acceptance and working towards reducing stigma and just loving people for their whole and their authentic selves. And so It's been really important for me to hold myself accountable and be willing to share my journey instead of hiding it. I have spent a lot of time, probably my entire life, hiding my mental health struggles. And as a result, I waited far longer than I should have to get diagnosed, and I waited far longer than I should have to find appropriate supports and services and learn the interventions and tools that help me live really well. I live a really beautiful life, but it has not been for lack of struggle and it has not been linear. Um, And so I'm going to tell you the real story today. Um, And I got to tell you guys, I'm a little bit nervous. I have a lot of fear about what it means to be honest about my mental health. I have a lot of shame that's been deeply rooted in my struggle. I have, as a professional, sat around people that have talked really negatively about people that experience the world like me, and I've got a lot of shame. And today, for whatever reason, I found a little bit of bravery. So I'm sitting in my car on my lunch break, and I'm starting this because I think that it's important. And I, I've got to tell my family and I've got to tell my partner. And a lot of the shame comes from that. What does it mean for them if I'm honest about the struggle? Will they feel shame about me? What does it mean if my employers find out about the way that I struggle with my mental health? Will it change the way that they think about me? Will it change the way that they interact with me? Will it change the assignments that they give me? So these are some of the thoughts that I've had and reasons why I have 
hid for a really long time. But I'm not hiding anymore. So this is my journey. So I was really young when I started to notice things that I knew were different about myself. Noticing that they were different meant that I saw other children who were probably in the same age as me, right? In the same classes, whatever. Um, not doing the things that I was doing and not saying the things that I was saying. So I remember being really young, probably like younger than eight, the first time that I heard voices um, telling me that I should die. And it was terrifying to me. I will never forget um, the home that we grew up in. My brother and I shared a bathroom. There was two sinks and I was on the right hand side near that sink. And I looked in the mirror and I could hear this voice screaming at me that I needed to die. Um, you can imagine for somebody who's young, right? Under eight, probably seven in that range. That was so confusing. It was so traumatizing. It was so scary because intellectually, I don't think that a child should understand what that means, what death means at that age. And intellectually, I don't think that I wanted to die, but I had this feeling, this desire, this thought telling me that I should die. So that's my intro. That's my story. Um, when I was young, I wanted a lot of attention. I was very outspoken, very bubbly. Um, I was a hard child to raise. I've been told that my entire life by my family because I always pushed boundaries and I always knew what I wanted and I was always working towards getting my way. Um, as an adult and as I've received diagnoses, I kind of have been able to give context to the reasons that I was like that then, but we're starting at the beginning of my story. So this is where the kind of confusion sets in, right? I'm in grade school. Fast forward a few years and when I was 11 years old, um, my family experienced significant trauma in um, one of my uncles taking their own life. And this is where I think things changed, right? So I was always probably predetermined to be someone who was going to struggle. Uh, I know that because I had those thoughts, those feelings, heard those voices telling me terrible things even before he died. But after he died, trauma changed me. And it's interesting because, right, he wasn't my sibling, but this is kind of secondary trauma. This is the trauma that um, came from confusion about why that happened. This is the trauma that came from watching my family dismantle in a way. Um, after his death, there was a lot of in-family fighting or disagreeing about kind of what was going to happen next or how to handle this. Um, relationships were pretty severed. And I lost relationships that I had had for 11, 12 years at this point with family members that I um, had planned to spend the rest of my life loving and hanging out with and growing up with, right? And those, the end of those relationships, that wasn't our fault, but it was the result of the fighting that came after his death. And this was the first time I experienced what severe abandonment and rejection felt like. Um, I want to say that that's not anybody's fault. So if there is somebody listening, perhaps in my family, that is um, 
interested to hear me talk about this like this. This is my lived experience, right? It's not the fault of anybody in our family because nobody knew how to manage the stuff that was going on. Um, but those feelings of severe rejection, severe abandonment, those carried with me. I think that trauma really set the stage. So there was a lot of things that happened for me after his death. I started to really struggle with um, symptoms of obsessive compulsiveness. And I think that that's because those were things I could control when everything else around me felt completely out of control. I started to really struggle with my relationship with my body, my relationship with myself. This was at the same time as I'm developing, right? I'm I'm in those preteen years, those really hard years. I started to engage in some self-harm. I really began to struggle more in my relationships and at the same time I was starting to notice attractions to both um uh, male-bodied people and female-bodied people. So I was starting to understand the differences in my sexuality there from what I had been conditioned to believe that I should be, right? Which was a straight woman or a straight child because at this point I'm pretty young. So a lot happened in those years and um, that kind of set the stage for me. I think that I've often thought about my life as before his death and after his death and before his death felt pretty okay. And after his death, Um, felt pretty rough. So moving on after that experience, um, I talk a lot about those feelings of abandonment and those feelings of rejection that I I had. Um, As I get older, those feelings increased. So I started to feel those in all of my interpersonal relationships, my relationships with my family, my relationships with my friends. I never really felt like I had what home was supposed to be for whatever reason. Um, I had two loving parents that were 100% committed to me, all in, very supportive. And yet, for whatever reason, I could never really securely attach. And that, I don't think, was their fault. And I don't think that that was my fault. Um, I think that trauma had a lot to do with that. So as I got older, I knew intellectually that the feelings I was having didn't fit the situations. And one of the things that I do now for myself as an adult is I fact check. Um, I wish that somebody had taught me that skill then. But we'll talk more about that later. But I started to notice that I was perceived as pretty dramatic, pretty over the top, um, pretty challenging, pretty difficult, really social, but also having a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame in relationships. I struggled in school a lot because that made it difficult for the teachers to manage my behavior. And I grew up in the public school system where classrooms are largely about managing behavior. Um, I got in trouble a lot because my teachers would email my mom and my mom would get really frustrated by my behavior. I think she probably hoped that I could just teach myself to calm down or quiet, but I couldn't and I didn't have the skills and she didn't have the skills to parent a child like me because nobody warned her. And I don't blame her for that, and I don't blame myself for that, which is a really, really interesting thing, because for a lot of years, I totally blamed her. And for a lot of years, I totally blamed myself, so I hated myself. And in those teenage years, those feelings of hate continued. So I continued to engage in risky behavior. I continued to engage in self-harm. 
And I never really found answers. I felt like I was looking for answers in all of the wrong places. So I would turn to relationships as a place to try to find my worth. And of course, I've now realized that you can't actually find your worth anywhere but from within. Um, I was kind of in and out of therapy, so my family would help me get access to supports and services. But then I didn't hear what I wanted to hear, and so I would disengage. I was never really in a place where I was ready to get answers, I don't think. Those things took me into high school where I really dove into relationships with people. And this is where I really, really struggled, right? Because I was starting to further explore my sexuality and what that meant. I was um, having what I thought at the time were really significant relationships. And I was pretty mean in them at times. I had these feelings of intense love for people and then in an instant, in a snap, it would change and I hated them deeply and I felt like they were ruining my life and I never knew why I was transitioning back and forth like that. At the same time, around the age of 16, I experienced the first of several sexual assaults and... I hid that because I didn't know if I made it up. I didn't know if somebody who had initially consented to um, intimate behavior with someone but then removed the consent, if I could still be considered someone who had something wrong done to them. Nobody answered those questions for me. Um, And I didn't go to a lot of people to ask those questions. So I hid that from my family and I hid that from my friends and things got really bad. Things got really bad. I was really lucky that after that experience, I had a really loving relationship with a guy in high school who... um, just saw me and supported me even when I was not always kind and even when I felt like I didn't deserve love and support he showed up for me and that was a saving grace in those years um obviously that relationship didn't last right I don't know where he's at today I hope that he's well um The end of that relationship was as a result of me really needing to explore my sexuality. So at this point, I'm about 17 and I started dating women, one in particular. And um, this relationship was pretty unsafe. Um, There was power differentials with me being on the, um, the side of less power and a lot of really, um, strange kind of dynamics that happened there. I was in a really vulnerable time in my life and I learned some really bad interpersonal relationship behaviors. Um, The relationship was pretty emotionally abusive from both ends, right? So I don't blame her. I don't entirely blame myself, but both parts of the relationship were not appropriate. And kind of going forward, um, in that relationship with her, I, I, I dovetailed. 
So I experienced my first major depressive episode when I was 18. I had graduated from high school with an associate's degree of arts. I was living on my own. I was enrolled in a few courses at a local community college and I just couldn't do it. So I dropped out, which probably terrified my family, but was ultimately really great for me because, um, I started to see how bad things were. I was at a place where if I wasn't working, then I would take a couple trazodone and sleep for 16 hours and I would go days without showering. Um, if I did have energy or if I was awake, I was kind of drinking a lot or starting to explore some of those um, uh, drinking and drugging behaviors and that wasn't safe. Um, and I needed support. So I found the first of two social workers who really changed my life. So I'm 18 years old and I meet this social worker um, in the Kaiser system who really um, was pivotal in those years. So I started working with her and I started going to individual and group therapy. Um, at this time, I didn't get any diagnoses other than uh, major depression. Um, but I was at a place where I couldn't go on. And I disclosed to her that I was there. And she saw that and she heard that. And I was transferred to an inpatient mental health facility, which was incredible because A, it kept me alive. But B, I think that it notified my family that I, that this was really serious for me. Um, And that if I didn't get the help and the support that I needed, I may not be okay. So I went to the hospital and I checked myself in um, into an inpatient program um, voluntarily and I showed up and I was terrified. It was a really scary experience for several reasons. One being that I had to share a room with somebody and I had never done that before. I felt locked in and out of control because I couldn't voluntarily move about or, or get access to the food that I wanted or... Um, uh, you know, um, had to ask to use the restroom, those kinds of things. I was also stuck in a place where there were, um, men and I was at a time in my life where I had a lot of fear about being near, um, men. So there was a lot of fear about sleeping in the hospital. Um, and so ultimately I think I spent about 15 or 16 hours there and I, I checked myself out against medical advice. And it's so funny because it was, it was the middle of winter. It was near Christmas and I'm 18 years old and I'm checking myself out. And I promised the psychiatrist he could take my license away from me. He could force me to move in with my parents. Like he could do anything as long as it meant me getting out of there. And what he said was, I will let you leave. Your mom can come get you. You can sign the against medical advice paperwork, but you will show up you know, the next day or Monday or whatever it was for an intensive outpatient program. And it's going to be three days a week and you have to commit because this will save your life. And so I did it. And I went three days a week for five hours a day. And so I had to change my work schedule around um, in order to do that. And I really started to learn some of the, the basic skills for maintaining my mental health. Um, these were the skills that kept me alive and I'm really, really grateful for those skills. 
they weren't the skills that were going to aid in my long-term recovery from my struggles. This was just kind of the start of things. So I learned a lot of mindfulness and I learned about how to give myself an adult kind of time out or to take a break or to disengage in conversations that were triggering, triggering to me or to step away without feeling um, guilt in relationships. I can't remember all of the skills that I used, but I learned a lot about how to calm myself during anxiety and panic. And I learned to set up programs for myself to ensure that I engaged in my personal care needs because I was depressed and I hadn't been doing that. So this was fabulous. This was the start of recovery. And at 18, I... Looking back, I'm super proud that I told someone how much I was struggling. But just completing that outpatient program wasn't like my, like I said, my, my end all be all of recovery. So, you know, fast forward the next couple years, I finished my undergraduate degree and I, um, moved away for the first time and I started my first career as a my first career position as a case manager I had engaged in some other relationships that were um interesting and often um really unsafe and uh, I had started to kind of get the hang of my anxiety and get the hang of my depression but I still couldn't figure out the relationship piece I still really, really struggled in my relationships. Um, And I never really knew why. I never knew why I could love people and hate them. I never knew why I felt incredibly rejected by people when intellectually I understood that they weren't rejecting me. I didn't know why I felt really attached to friends who didn't appear to feel attached to me in the same way. I didn't know why I didn't want to be alone like there was a lot of really interesting things that I knew and I noticed about myself but I didn't have answers for why I was that way Um, and I didn't find answers until a few years later but so I started my career journey which was incredible and then I applied for graduate school so I had decided to get my undergraduate degree in psychology after that outpatient program because I wanted to help people like me I felt like I was underrepresented as a young person. I knew that I had struggled from a really early age, but nobody ever saw and taught me or or showed me the path to living better. They just kind of passed me forward and called me dramatic along the way, but they didn't pick up on the really important cues. And I felt like if somebody had picked up on the really important cues, um, and gotten me the supports early on, maybe I wouldn't have needed to be hospitalized and maybe I wouldn't have needed to do outpatient and maybe I would have learned to be an advocate early on. So that was why I decided to start this path in social services. And I will never regret that journey. It has been incredible to give back. Um, so I'm 21 at this point, case manager, loving being away from home, doing all the young, not so great things and also really great things, right? And I decided I was bored and I thought, well, I might as well go to graduate school. I'm living in close to the University of Washington that has one of the best programs um, 
the, the best MSW programs, which is a Master of Social Work. So let me just shoot my shot and see if I get in. So I applied and I was shocked, but I got in. And then I thought, well, I might as well go, right? Uh, and that was kind of the start of the real path to recovery. So I started graduate school. I met three really incredible friends who... Um, saw me and supported me and who I was able to see and support. So I started to really develop a a root of people that kept me grounded as I continued to struggle in my interpersonal relationships. Um, but I was, I was able to balance full-time work and school in a long-term relationship, um, kind of okay, but that relationship was not great. And I still really had, dangerous and inappropriate behavior in that relationship. I wasn't kind always, even though I consider myself to be a kind person. I was really jealous and I didn't know why there was a lot going on there. And so I was seeing this therapist who um, I didn't ever feel like I did a lot of work with, but she connected me to a psychiatrist because I had decided that at about um, 22 or 23 that maybe medication was the right path for me. And so I saw him and I had an intake with him and um, I was devastated at the time, but I started to get answers. For a long time, people had thrown out all of these possible diagnoses for me. They had said, maybe you have bipolar disorder, maybe you have cyclothymia, um, you know, a variety of other kind of disorders and none of them really fit. And I think that people just wanted to give me a diagnosis that spoke to my mood um, changes because my mood has always really frequently changed. Um, But that didn't account for any of the other interpersonal relationship struggles. So that didn't account for the fact that I felt severe rejection and abandonment. And that didn't account for the fact that I both loved and hated people fiercely. And that didn't account for the fact that I had this lifelong experience of, of inner hate, of inner turmoil, of desire to end my life or not desire to end my life, but not understanding that. And so what he did was give me the diagnosis, the fit, the diagnosis that I know to be true and the diagnosis that felt true for my partner at the time, um, and has continued to remain true. Before I say it, and it's not that big of a deal, but for whatever reason, I want to say that this is the first time that I've ever really offered this information widely. Um, I don't even think that my brother or my best friends know, um, It was really hard for me to tell my partner, but I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And I was devastated because I had heard people talk about borderlines from hell. I had heard my professors say that the only group of um, people that they would deny counseling to was uh, young women with borderline personality disorder because it's the hardest group of people to work with. That is what I had been told. And so... I both hated myself when I heard that diagnosis, but ultimately felt like I was beginning to understand myself. And what that psychiatrist said to me was, who cares that this is the label? This is just a set of symptoms. This begins to kind of understand some of this lifelong experience that you've been having. And that was kind of that. 
after I received the diagnosis, I um, didn't do much about it. So in classic uh, Sarah fashion, I, you know, got a couple prescriptions that I took for a minute and didn't take. And I continued to engage in really inappropriate behavior in my relationships. Um, I was lucky enough to finish graduate school, although it was pretty bumpy along the way. So at some point I developed a, um, a pretty significant eating disorder. And I actually um, went to the hospital my senior year for that because um, I was not doing well. I wasn't functioning well at work or at school. And they had kind of threatened to um, put me into an inpatient program and get support for that. And that was the moment where I was like, no, no, I will be finishing graduate school. So I got a hang-ish on some of those disordered eating behaviors. Um, and I'm consider myself kind of in recovery or on the path to recovery there. I don't starve. I don't binge. I, I still struggle with some, some body, um, checking behavior and some, um, maybe dysmorphia in a way, but, um, that I kind of try to keep a really good focus on because those were a painful, probably 12 or 14 months with some disordered eating stuff, which happens to be really common for women who experience borderline personality disorder. But I finished graduate school and probably six or seven months before I finished graduate school, I met Tori. And meeting Tori, who I'm about to marry in 28 days, um, changed everything. She was the first person I have ever in my entire life felt um, attached to um, in a way that I can't even explain. I knew from the moment that I met her that she was safe. I knew from the moment that I met her she was a person that I needed to love and that I needed to love me. Um, and so we started doing long distance. And then when I finished school, I moved back home to be with her. Um, and surprise, surprise, it was, you know, the first year was pretty hard. Um, we got engaged, we bought a house, and I still had a lot of struggles in that relationship. And I was noticing myself probably about a year ago, um, engaging in all of these behaviors that I had hated myself for for a long time not always being kind to her even though I wanted to be um, feeling like I loved her and then instantly feeling like I hated her and not knowing why and that was really really hard for her because she's a person that just wants to fix things and make it better and she realized that there was not going to be a fixing me that I had to fix myself so we talked a lot about how it was time for me to find another provider and I found the therapist that I'm working with now who I think is the ultimate um, um, cat, catapult to my recovery. And I met her and I was really struggling with myself in my relationship with Tori, with depression, again, starting to have kind of symptoms of a major depressive episode. And she saw me and she created space for me. And there was one single question, and I actually just recently wrote a guest blog post for somebody about this and, and about how it helped prompt me into recovery. There was one single question my therapist asked me, and that was, you know that having borderline personality disorder just means that you struggle with emotional regulation, right? And I thought, oh my God, you are right. 
I am not this terrible hell on wheels kind of girl that people have been telling me my entire life I am. I'm just a person who struggles to regulate my emotions for whatever reason. And so when she told me that, then she followed it up by saying, you know that there's tools and there's interventions for this, right? And I thought, well, hello, I'm a social worker. I got a freaking graduate degree in social work. I know about DBT. I know about CBT. I know that there are modalities to help support this, but I hadn't yet had that lived experience about what it meant to really develop person-centered interventions. And then she taught me about validation. And when I learned about validation, it was game over. She helped advocate for me to get into an inpatient, um, not, I'm sorry, not an inpatient, an outpatient DBT, so dialectical behavioral therapy program at Portland DBT. And I can honestly say that Portland DBT saved my relationship and it probably saved my life. So I started going to Portland DBT and I still go and I learned more about all of the interventions and all of the tools and there's a whole lot of them about how to manage my inner turmoil, how to manage my feelings of self-hate, skills to use in my relationship when I begin to struggle. So I started to um, use fact checking and I use that every day. Tori and I started to develop cope ahead plans for um, pre-planning crisis essentially to avoid me sabotaging um, within our intimate relationship but then also within our relationship as a couple to communities and to, to other people because I have a tendency to, t- to sabotage um, for fear of not being accepted at the end so I've always just kind of sabotaged relationships so that I wouldn't be accepted and I could blame myself for it so that I never had to deal with what it means to actually be rejected by people so coping ahead changed everything and I can honestly tell you that Portland DBT my therapist my relationship with Tori and starting to talk about it has been what has created recovery for me And so I personally define recovery as not eliminating my, my behaviors that are sometimes inappropriate, um, but rather as noticing behaviors and then using the interventions as the, and the tools to, um, experience less of them or to make them less traumatic for me. I define recovery as not engaging in self-harm. I define recovery as um, not exercising to punish myself, but rather exercising to connect. I define recovery as practicing vulnerability and willingness in relationships and developing them with people. And I also identify recovery as advocacy. And so for me, a huge piece of this is being willing to share this stuff with you guys, with my coworkers, with community members, Not to just share my story, because my story is a tiny, tiny piece of this huge puzzle, right? But as a way of saying, it is okay to talk about the the things in your life that you deeply struggle with, because other people deeply struggle struggle with them too, or with other, other things, and that there are tools, there are interventions, there are groups of people, there are supporters that want to be there on your path to recovery. So that is what this stuff means for me. That is kind of a snapshot. And I'm sure I missed out on a lot of little things along the way um, of what my mental health journey has looked like. 
I want people to know that I have a beautiful, successful life despite struggling with arguably one of the most stigmatized mental health disorders among others, right? That's not my only mental health disorder. Um, that I am a person who experiences a lot of privilege and I don't take that for granted. I believe in always talking about biases, um, and reducing them. And ultimately that recovery is possible. So that is who I am. And it feels really necessary to be willing to share that with you guys before I just dive in and ask people to share it with me, right? If anybody has any questions or um, wants to talk about what this has looked like for me, please, please, please reach out. I love sharing the tools and resources that have worked for me so that maybe they can work for other people. I thank you all for giving me the space to share this with you. I feel the need to apologize if any way it's been triggering for you, but I want to take that back because I don't want to continue to live in a world where I feel like I have to apologize for appearing over the top or maybe dramatic or some of those things that I've been told my entire life that I am. I want to live in a world where it's just okay for me to be me and where it's just okay for you whoever you are, to be you in your most authentic and vulnerable and beautiful self. Bye guys. Thank you so much.